Good morning, everyone. Good seeing you all here this evening. As you know, uh, up at this point, we have been allowed to have 50 people inside this auditorium and then some more back in the remote service. And just this, this week, we were able to start having twice that number, up to 100 inside the auditorium, practicing social distancing and wearing our masks and washing our hands, those good things, as well as we can have some people back in the uh, remote service. And so if you're online and you're listening and you have desired to be in an in-person service, then let me encourage you to register for that so that you might be able to come and, and enjoy just being with other people and uh, enjoying worshiping together with one another. Let me make you aware of one just very quick announcement, and that is, you recall last week we had a car wash. Our teens put on a car wash in order to help the Ramirez family Anibal Ramirez, as you recall, was one of our missionaries down in Guatemala that we supported, and he passed away, leaving his wife and three children behind. And so the teens did a great cause last week when they washed a number of cars and took donations. If you were not able to participate in that and would like to do so, you might still have an opportunity to give a donation to that cause there. And if you could do that today, because I think they're going to try to send a check out tomorrow, uh, in their direction. So anyway, make sure you take opportunity if you'd like to uh, take part in, in that. In the month of January, almost every year in Nashville, Tennessee, over 4,000 coaches from the Little League all the way up to Major League Baseball, they come together for a two-day convention at the Opryland Hotel, which is also called the Gaylor. Uh, while they are there, they're, you know, they're, they learn all kinds of things about the a science of baseball, from bunting to pitching mechanics to um, hitting philosophies. They talk about how to run bases, how to put together practices. Anything you want to learn about baseball, you can find there. And over 4,000 coaches come to this convention, and they listen to all kinds of speakers. A lot of the speakers talk about the fundamentals of baseball and the deep things of baseball. And then there are some speakers that talk about the game of, of life. Of the motivational speakers that come there, there's this one person that you see behind me by the name of John Scalinas. John Scalinas was at that time a 78-year-old baseball coach, an incredible person from Cal Poly Pomona. And he would come and he would speak, and he was always a crowd favorite for those individuals. Back in 1996, uh, John was invited to come and speak once again and that day was no exception to the kind of lessons that he was known to, to bring. He was slated to speak at a 1 p.m. discourse or a 1 p.m. Uh, lectureship, a time when most people, you know, kind of decide to hang out with their friends and get to know each other. But when John Scalinos was heard that he was going to be speaking that day, it was a packed crowd. It was completely um, just filled up with all the coaches that were there. And as John Scalina, 17 years old, eight years old, began to shuffle out onto the, the stage, uh, over 4,000 men stood up in an ovation uh, for this fellow. He was wearing a dark polyester pants. He was wearing a light blue shirt. And around his neck was hung a string, and attached to the string was a home plate, a stark white a home a plate. Uh, it was filled to capacity. They were ready to hear what he had to say as he talked about the motivation of life that he had learned in the 78 years of his, his life. After speaking for about 25 minutes without ever men mentioning the home plate that was hang hanging around his neck, he noticed out in the audience that people began to, to snicker, the coaches were, and, and laugh. And, and he thought to himself, they're probably wondering what I'm doing with this plate hanging around my neck. And so he asked them, he says, I suppose you guys are all wondering why I'm up here with this 
baseball player, this home plate hanging around my, my neck. I assure you that I'm not crazy. I didn't, you know, I didn't escape from Camarillo State Hospital. I know exactly what I am doing. And so what I've come to do is I want to speak to you baseball people about the important things of life. I want to talk to you about baseball, but I want to talk to you about the things that I've learned in life, what I've learned about home plate in 78 years. And then he began by speaking to him, by asking, he goes, are there any Little League coaches in here? And a lot of hands went up. And he says to the Little League baseball coaches, he asked him, he says, how wide is home plate? And they kind of looked at one another and more than a answer, they, it was more like put forth as a question, like 17 inches? He goes, that's right. It's 17 inches wide. Are there any Babe Ruth coaches in here? More hands went up in there. He goes, how wide is home plate? And they said, it's 17 inches. He goes, correct. Are there any high school coaches in here? Hands went up. How wide is home plate? And they said, 17 inches. Absolutely. Are there any collegiate coaches in here? A lot of hands went up then. I mean, lots of hands. He goes, how wide is home plate at the collegiate level? And they said, 17 inches. Do I have any Major League Baseball coaches in here? Some more hands went up. He goes, in the Major League game of baseball, how wide is home plate? And they all said 17 inches. And then he bellowed out in a very loud voice, 17 inches. That is the width of home plate. And then he paused for a few moments. And he said to those guys there, 17 inches you major league coaches, he goes, what do you do with a player or a pitcher who is not able to throw the ball over 17 inches of plate? What do you do with them? And then he paused and he said, you send them to Pocatello, which is the end of the line in a baseball career. Everyone laughed. He thought that was, was so funny. But then he says, he goes, what we don't say is we don't say, okay, Jimmy, I know it's hard to throw the ball over the plate. But listen, we can widen it 18 inches. And if you can't hit 18 inches, we can widen it to 19 inches and 20 inches. And if you're trying really hard and you're not able to hit those 20 inches, well, then we'll just widen it to 25 inches. And then he paused. And all of a sudden, they went from being snickering and laughing to getting really a serious and then he said to them, as he took the home plate and turned away from the crowd, he drew something on it with a Sharpie or a magic marker, and when he turned around, the plate was upside down, and on it were a door and some windows drawn on it, a house. And he said to him, them, this is the problem in our homes today. With our marriages, with the way we parent our kids, with our discipline, we don't teach accountability to our kids, and there's no consequences for failing to meet standards. We widen the plate. And then he pointed to the top of the home plate, and he drew an American flag. And then he said, this is the problem in our schools today. The quality of our education is going downhill fast, and teachers have been stripped of the tools they need to be successful and to educate and discipline our young people. We are following others. We are allowing others to widen home plate. Where is that getting us? 
more silence. He took his sharpie out and he drew now a flag, with, in place of the flag, a cross and said, this is the problem in the church where powerful people in possessions of authority have taken advantage of young children only to have such atrocity swept under the rug for years. Our church leaders are widening home plate. And even in baseball, we widen the plate. Coaches, what do you do if your best player is constantly late for practice? What if the rules are that you forbid facial hair and they come with, uh, with unshaven faces or they get caught drinking? What do we do with those players? Do we change the rules so that they will fit them? Do we widen the plate? Those thoughts, when you go to a convention like that, you're thinking to yourself, if you're one of those coaches, I came here to learn about bunting. I came to learn about the philosophy of hitting, the mechanics of pitching, how to run bases, how to put together practices, and all the nuances, uh, nuances of baseball. Seldom do you think of the thoughts that you're going to be talking about life, but John Scalinus was talking about life. He was talking to them about their strengths. He was talking to them about their weaknesses and the need to hold themselves accountable, to be the very best that they could be and to ask the very best of their, their players. And then he was challenging them in terms of their homes and in terms of their churches and in terms of their country about if we widen the plate in those areas, where is that going to get us in, in life? Scalinus went on to say as he concluded, if I am lucky, you will remember one thing from this old coach today. It is this. If we fail to hold ourselves to the higher standard, a standard of what we know it to be right, we fail to hold our spouses and our children to the same standards. If we are unwilling or unable to provide consequences when they do not meet the standard, and if our schools and churches and our government fail to hold themselves accountable to those they serve, there is but one thing to look forward to. And then he took home plate and he turned it around to the backside of it, and there, instead of stark white, was stark black. And he said, dark days ahead. Coach Scalinos, he died in 2009. He's 91 years old, but before he died, he motivated hundreds, if not thousands, of baseball coaches and, and players. And he, he coached them more than just about the game of baseball, he coached them about the game of, of life. His message was clear, coaches keep your players no matter how good they are, your own children and most of all yourselves at 17 inches. I read that, I've read it several times, I don't know if I've even used it here or not, maybe I have, but the illustration was so poignant, so motivational. There's a lot of motivated, motivational speakers in the world today. I've heard numerous ones, Bobby, Bobby Bowden, Lou Holtz, Zig Ziglar, Norman Vincent Pill, Eric Sharma. Lots of great motivational speakers in society. In the church, there's a lot of great motivational speakers as, as well. Uh, but that's not who I'm speaking about or what I'm even talking about when I talk about motivation. Did you know that in the church there are seven motivators that Paul lays out for us 
in Romans the 12th chapter that we talked about last week. Last week, I added to it the second series in, theme, in tune with the theme that I've been sharing with you about identity. And that was embracing your unique gifts and talents. And you recall that we looked at Romans the 12th chapter and we began looking at verse 1 and, and we went down through verse 8. But listen to what he says in verse four and 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. And then he goes on and he lays out the seven gifts that are, are there. And what he is saying there is that the church is not just a bunch of people who come to a church building and rattle around bumping into one another. But what he's saying is the church is like the human body that has a lot of members that make up that body. And that body and those members are all dependent upon one another to perform the function that God has made the body to perform in. If the body wants to be healthy, if the body wants to have vitality, then it must be that the body works together in harmony with one another. And his analogy is, is that when you talk about the church, that is necessary as well, that we work together. And so beginning this morning, we're going to talk a little about gifts and talents that motivate before before we get into talking about the gifts and talents that motivate and we begin to dig down and drill down into these seven gifts that are there i wanted to lay some some foundation or some groundwork about this idea of of gifts because when you look at romans the 12th chapter what you'll discover when it comes down to gifts is that every believer has at least one gift the gifts that are given, they're, they're different. We're not all the same in terms of our giftedness or our talents. And that thirdly, we are to exercise our gifts or our talents for the common good or for the benefit of all. But to do that, we need to understand what the gifts are about. So let me talk to you for a good majority of our time this morning about gifts of the New Testament because there are a number of lists that are given in the scriptures, but... When you look at those lists, people get really confused about what they are. Are they spiritual gifts? Are they natural gifts? What are the gifts that are talking about? And in the New Testament, there are at least four lists of gifts that you're able to identify. The first one is found over in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 8, where it says, after Jesus had ascended on high, he, it says, gave gifts to men. And in verse 11, he says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Verse 12 says, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of service. And then he goes on to talk about the maturing of the body. And so I call this list here gifts of leadership that the Lord gave for the purpose of equipping and maturing the church so that each member takes its rightful place in the building up of the body of Christ. That he ends in verse 16, says, in, in love. So the work of those are to do that. However, when you look at the four gifts that are behind me, two of them no longer exist and two today remain. The apostles as a gift, that went away, except that which is preserved within the scriptures, but that position went away with their deaths, and the prophets, they went away with the miraculous. Those who had new information coming down the pike to them, because in those days, the beginning of the church, they didn't have Bibles as you have sitting 
in, in your laps, which means the two that remain would be evangelists, those who are uh, proclaiming the good news or a good message or a well message, and then, of course, pastor teachers that you know me basically in the church as, as elders. Then there's the gifts that we just talked about, that I've been talking to you about in Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 6 through 8, and there behind me you can see what those seven gifts are. These are the gifts that motivate. In fact, a lot of scholars call them the motivational gifts that have been divinely handed down by God's grace and are to be used for the benefit of the body. Then there's a very small list found over in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verses 10 and 11. And like the gifts of Romans, these contextually seem to be divinely handed out gifts uh, by God's grace for the purpose of serving and ministering to one another. And then there is a large section that talks about gifts over in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 1, and going down through about verse 10, and then you get into that idea of the body analogy that Butch read to us a little bit ago, and then down to verses 28 through 31, where he talks about apostles and prophets and healings and miracles, and, and he talks about uh, uh, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, etc. So those things are all there. And so when you look at the 12th chapter, you can see those gifts there. And so if you were to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10, you'll find out that those gifts have been laid out and that the gifts exist for the purpose of edification, exhortation, and consolation, and instruction, and that those gifts are to be used uh, for the coming good of all. Now, when Paul writes the uh to the corinthians about their spiritual gifts it's the reason he's writing to them is because they have abused those gifts there and so now they're in hot water with the apostle and so he writes to them in chapter 12 to lay out for them the what the gifts were why the gifts were important to the body and so he uses the analogy of the body but there's an abuse that is there so he ends the 12th chapter by saying let me show you a more superior gift in the 13th chapter than comes into play, and that's the chapter that we all know is a chapter on love, what love is and what love is not. And then he goes to the 14th chapter, and he then explains how the gifts are to be used in an orderly, an orderly uh, fashion. In the graph that you see behind me, you see all four of those lifts that are uh, there for your consideration. What I want to do this morning is I basically want to focus in on those two lists because in the two lists, it takes into account the other two lists. The question that might come to your mind is, well, how are these things different? With the exception of prophecy and, and teaching, the lists are entirely different in almost every, every way. And so the question comes up, well, why are these lists different? As you look at the list behind me in the 12th chapter, you can see how those lists in chapter 12 are different from those of of First uh, Corinthians 12 are different from those over in Romans, the 12th uh, chapter. So what are the differences between the two gifts? Well, in First Corinthians, the 12th chapter, when you look at prophecy and discernment, I think some of your translations have distinguishing, distinguishing or distinguishings a spirit. Uh, you'll find that as discernment, uh, miracles, healings, and tongues, and language, and and the interpretation of language. And so what are the differences between the two lists? For lack of a better word, when you look at the list in chapter 12 of, of 1 Corinthians, 
you notice that they're fairly flashy. They're impressive. Maybe a better word that I probably could have used was that they're more demonstrative. But nevertheless, they're, they're, more, they're, they're more flashy, they're, they're more impressive. Uh, most scholars call them the miraculous gifts. They are flashy because think about if a person is speaking tongues who is speaking a language that they, had, they weren't educated in. They hadn't been taught the, the language, but now they can speak the language. And not only that, there's someone that can interpret that language who had never studied language or had been educated in languages and yet is able to interpret the language. Or a person who is able to bring fresh teachings from the Holy Spirit through prophecy and another person who is able to distinguish that prophecy or that spirit, whether what they're saying is right or whether it is from God or or not. And so the gifts of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians are fairly flashy. They are impressive. They're showy, if you will. They're not normal things that most common people would, would do. And so they're more of the showy, flashy kind of gift when you compare it to Romans, the 12th chapter. The, the gifts of Romans, the 12th chapter, are mundane by comparison. They just don't have that sh same show quality. And so if you were to... You know, if you were to talk about the difference, one writer I was reading said that he likens it to uh, going out to dinner, and one couple, they go out to dinner, and the man, he dresses up in a suit or in a tux, and the woman dresses up in a, in a nightgown. Whereas the Roman 12 guys, they would just be in their work clothes. And so the work clothes gifts, if you will, it's where you just roll your sleeves up and you get down uh, to the work of church and, and body life in terms of serving and teaching and encouraging and giving and leadership and, and those kinds of things. So there's those types of gifts. And so why does Corinth seem to get all the flashy gifts and Rome, Rome doesn't seem to get any of them? I mean, why is there that stark difference between the two congregations? And I think the answer, at least one of the best explanations, is that the flashy gifts were very likely imparted by the laying on of the apostles' hands. And so behind me, you see an artist's rendition of apostles laying their hands upon a person conferring the gifts or transferring the gifts or the enablement of that person to receive a gift from the Holy Spirit of a miraculous nature. An example of that, as Paul wrote to Timothy over in 1 Timothy, the, or 2 Timothy, the first chapter, and verse 6, he says, For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So there's something special about what Paul is telling Timothy. I've laid my hands on you, you have received a gift. Rekindle that afresh, fan the flame of that. And as you get down through the book of Acts, then you'll see several occasions where it talks about the laying on of the apostles' hands. For instance, in chapter 8 and verses 4 through 6, and then verses 12 down through 13, Philip, who is one of the deacons over in chapter 7, the church is persecuted and scattered. Philip is scattered. He becomes an evangelist, and he proclaims the gospel, the good news of Jesus down in Samaria. And the result of that is that many men and women, including Simon the sorcerer, who is known as the great power of God, a sleight of hand guys, they were believing in Jesus, and they were being baptized. But in verses 14 through 16, there seems to be something that is missing. There's something about the Holy Spirit that is missing in their lives. Something that even someone as godly as, as Philip was could not give to them. 
And so news came to Jerusalem about the conversions that were taking place in Samaria, and they decided to send down to Samaria Peter and John, who were two apostles, and when they came, they were laying hands on them, and something powerful and mystifying begins to happen to them as the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Let me just ask you to go back to Rome, to Acts the 8th chapter and just notice what he is saying here beginning in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, who was the source of Saul the Spirit, uh, was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter, he sternly, he, he sternly ad, uh, admonishes him. He said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Therefore, repent of your wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be for, forgiven. So he receives a stern rebuke for thinking that he could purchase the authority or the ability to lay hands on people and transfer the power of the Holy Spirit into people's life and so peter says to him you have no part or portion in this it was something that was given only to the apostles as you go over to acts the 19th chapter you'll read about paul as he goes to the region of of ephesus and when he encounters the disciples of john the baptist he asked them if they had received the holy spirit and their answer was since they believed they said they replied they, they hadn't even heard that there's a such thing as the holy spirit so Paul then asked him, so what, into what were you baptized? And he said, into John's baptism. And it's like a light went off in Paul's mind and said, bingo, that's the problem. And it says that he began to teach them the good news about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And they respond positively to the message, and he baptizes them into Christ. And then it says Paul lays his hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So you have several examples of the laying on of the apostles' hands. One where Paul reminds Timothy of the gift that is in him from the laying on of his hands. You have the example of Peter and John coming down to Samaria to impart spiritual gifts that Philip could not do so, no matter how godly he was. It was only for the apostles. It could not be uh, purchased. And then you have Paul here in Acts the 19th chapter in Ephesus, laying his hands upon 12 of the disciples of John, then becoming Christians, and then receiving the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. So the conclusion is, is there are, are certain gifts that were imparted to believers by the laying on of the hands of the apostles, and no one else seemed to be able to impart those gifts in any other way. Which brings us back to Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and that list that is given to us there. Paul was the one who founded the church in Corinth, and he spent approximately almost three years, the longest he had spent anywhere during his uh, missionary journeys, uh, 
he spent more time in Corinth than any other place. And so he undoubtedly laid his hands on many of them and they received the flashier kinds of gifts. And he writes to them because of their abuse of the gifts. They think that because they have gifts such as speaking in languages or tongues or interpreting language in tongues that they were superior to other people who maybe had just the natural gifts that you see over in Romans the 12th a chapter thinking that they are better than them and so Paul he says listen not all are uh, in verse 28 he says not all are apostles not all are prophets not all are, have the gifts of healing or of doing miracles. Not all have the ability to speak in tongues or to interpret tongues. But I'll show you still a more perfect gift, a more perfect way. And then he talks about, about the importance of love being within that body of believers. And then he goes on to talk to them about some ways that they are to conduct themselves during the service. But Paul, he had not yet went to Rome. He had not gone to Rome. And so in Romans, the first chapter in verse 11, I think I quickly mentioned to you last week, he said, Paul wrote to them saying, for I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established or be made strong. But guess what? He wasn't able to get there. So these gifts of Romans, the 12th chapter are not like the gifts of first Corinthians. And the, and the reason is, is that because no apostle had come to Rome to lay hands on any of the Christians there. And so they don't have the spiritual or the miraculous gifts in Rome that they have over in, in Corinth. So these gifts in Romans, the 12th chapter, they weren't the showy kinds of, of miraculous kinds of gifts that the Corinthians were known, known for. But as I mentioned last week, these gifts are just as important just as impactful and powerful, if not more so than the flashy gifts that are given to Christians, uh, that Christians have given, or the, the natural gifts that Christians have been given at least one of them. And not only that, but the miraculous gifts would have died off with the apostles because it was through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the miraculous gifts were transferred. So if you just think rationally with me for a moment and think about John, who writes the last book, which is the book of Revelation. He's an old man. If you say that Revelation was written somewhere between 98, uh, 93 to 98 AD, he's an old man, which means it's quite possible that John could have died at the end of the first century or at the very early part of the second century. And it's possible that John may have laid hands on someone during that period of time, which would result in there would be one generation of people past the life of the last apostle, John, who may have had some kind of miraculous or spiritual gift, such as prophecy probably would be the most important one of all of them, uh, and then they would have died. And when that generation dies with that gift with them and no one to lay hands to transfer, the miraculous age would come to an end. But by that time, uh, the word of God will be firmly established in the world. Because the gifts, uh, the gifts, the miraculous gifts, they were given for the purpose of edification, exhortation, encouragement, consolation, and instruction for the common good of all. It was to mature an infant church who did not have Bibles like you do sitting in their laps. 
They have 21 books. There are four, uh, four of the Gospels and then the epistles, the prison epistles and the general epistles and revelation. You have those books that are coming down the line. It will take some time for them to collect and canonize or bring them into rule, bring them to a part. But by, by I think, the second century, 108 AD, I think 15 of them have been canonized or brought together by uh, well, 115 AD. 22 of them are brought together by 170 AD. Then 70 years of John's life, it will be completely canonized except for Hebrews 1st, 2nd, and 3rd uh, John. And by you get to the beginning of the 4th century, I think 325 AD, you'll have all the books canonized, all the books brought together in a collection and recognized as the word of God. Hence, there would be no need for the miraculous uh, age. But these seven gifts of Romans 12 would exist today since they were not dependent upon apostolic transference. They are in every church that belongs to Christ. Every believer has at least one of these gifts and some more than, than one. So let me very quickly talk to you a little bit about the gifts and talents that motivate. Because I believe that God gifts the church as much as he did back in the first century. Some churches, they received the miraculous. Some did not. But eventually, you know, Paul would get to Rome and others would get to Rome and they would have apostolic authority teaching them face to face. So let me talk to you about the motivational gifts of Romans, the 12th chapter. I believe that God places within us the passion or, if you will, the drive within a person to exercise these gifts unless we quench them or we neglect them or we just ignore them. That's possible. God is not going to make any of us use our gifts or our, our talents. He's just not going to. He leaves it up to us to decide whether we are going to employ those, that we are to, to be those who are able to identify what that gift does in, is in my life and then to use them. And as I mentioned last week, I, don't believe, I believe every person receives at least one gift, but if you use that gift, I'm not so sure that God doesn't give you more gifts to use to the benefit of all, for the common good of all, and to his glory. So if a person has the gift of prophecy, it would be to motivate, they'd be motivated to proclaim the gospel with a straightforwardness to call people to repentance. That person may have that kind of a gift. Or a person who has the gift of giving would be motivated to give away money or other things like time or energy or emotion to those who are in need. Or a person may have the gift of, of mercy, and he, would be, he or she would be motivated to show mercy to those who are hurting. Or a person may have the gift of teaching, and they would be motivated to teach and to share truths about God's word. Or a person may have the gift of service, would be motivated to serve in whatever way they could to benefit another person. Or the person may have the gift of encouragement. They'd be motivated to encourage those who are down and depressed and are in need of a word of encouragement to just lift them up. Or maybe the person has the gift of leadership. 
They would be motivated to lead by influencing and motivating people towards a positive, uh, toward a po- positive, the spiritual direction. <laughs> so those are the the gifts that you see there. Patty's going, "What's the joke?" I don't get the joke. Well, I misspelled spiritual with a D there. I saw Patty going, "What's he talking about? What's that? Is he crazy?" So here's the conclusion of the lesson, and it's this. As Christians, we're expected to spiritually hit 17 inches with our gifts and talents. You each have a gift or a talent that is uniquely yours, that God has blessed you with. I've oftentimes thought about the seven gifts that John, uh, that Paul writes about here in Romans 12. And I thought, well, do the gifts go beyond those? Maybe, maybe there's other ones, but if you take all those gifts and you were to put them together and look at them, they can go in a lot of, when it comes to serving, you can go in a lot of different directions as a servant. When it comes to teaching, it goes in a lot of direction as a teacher. When it comes down to showing mercy, it goes in a lot of direction when it comes to being merciful or encouragement or in leadership. Leadership is just elders and and deacons and ministers. There's lots of other areas of leadership. You understand what I'm saying? And so as the body of Christ, we have a lot of different gifts and that we're to use those gifts. We're not to widen the plate. We're to use the width that God has given to us, which are these natural gifts. And then we are to use them for the benefit of all to the building up of the body of Christ to give in God glory. And so as you think about these gifts in the coming weeks, and I begin to drill down and dig down into those gifts there, I want you to be thinking about what is my gift? And if I do have this gift, am I using it? Am I hitting the 17 inches? Be thinking about that. And now I'd ask you to think about your response to the lesson. Whatever your response is, it's yours and yours alone. Once you make it known, where together we stand and sing and give you opportunity to do that very thing.